Welcome to The Fastest Five Minutes, presented by Kroll & Mooring. We are your co-hosts for this edition, Peter Ayer and Yuan Zhou, bringing you a bi-weekly summary of significant government contracts legal and regulatory developments that no government contracts lawyer or executive should be without. We start today's podcast with two interesting GAO decisions. So I'll start with the first one. On April 9th, GAO denied a protest by Reliant Global, challenging the Army's decision to amend rather than cancel and reissue its RFP for debris management services. So a little bit of background. On May 2nd of 2019, the Army issued an RFP seeking to establish a large number of IDIQ contracts, some of which were restricted small business set-aside and others of which were open to all offerors. Reliance submitted its proposal to be considered for three of the small business set-aside contracts. After four unsuccessful offerors filed a protest with GAO, the Army issued six amendments to the solicitation and set a new January 5, 2021 deadline for revised proposals without canceling or reissuing the solicitation. The amendments made modifications such as revising price schedule and specific, adding estimated quantities, and eliminating key personnel evaluation subfactors. Reliance subsequently filed the protest on January 5th before the deadline for receipt of proposals, and essentially they said that it was harmed by the agency's RFP amendment process. Reliant argued that its current teaming agreements prevented it from submitting a competitive revised proposal, and it couldn't extract itself from current teaming agreements unless the solicitation was canceled. GAO rejected the argument, reasoning that the teaming agreement was a competitive disadvantage caused by Reliant itself, not any type of improper agency action, saying there's no requirement that the agency equalize a competitive advantage or disadvantage that an offeror may experience because of its own business circumstances. Moreover, while Reliant contended that other contractors likely refrained from competing under the initial solicitation due to certain agency errors, GAO determined that Reliant didn't have standing to assert the rights of other potential offerors. So as we've talked about before, good reminder about the importance of teaming agreements and how they're structured, termination provisions, refresh provisions, things like that. So we have another GAO decision to talk about, and Yuan, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Peter. On February 25th, the GAO dismissed a protest that was BF2 against the Army's Corrective Action Award to Vectris because VS2 failed to raise its arguments when it intervened in the original protest filed by Vectress against the initial ward to VS2. So a windy set of facts, let's start at the beginning with the initial award to VS2. VS2 was initially awarded an Army contract for logistics support services at Fort Benning, conducted under the Enhanced Army Global Logistics Enterprise Multiple Award IDIQ. The solicitation essentially established a low-cost price, technically acceptable basis for award, under which the Army would make the award to the responsible offeror that received a substantial competence rating under the past performance factor, submitted the lowest evaluated cost price proposal, and was terminable under the technical and small business evaluation factors. Although Vectris had proposed the lower cost, Price, the Army made an upward realism adjustment to Vectris's cost proposal, resulting in an award of the contract of VS2. Now, Vectris 
first protested and GAO sustained the protest, agreeing that the agency had erred in applying that upward cost adjustment to Vectris's proposal. So after recalculating the cost of Vectris's bid, GAO concluded that Vectris was entitled to receive the task order and recommended that the Army terminate the task order issued to the S2 and instead issue the task order to Vectris. The S2 then brought a protest against the agency's most recent source selection decision awarding the contract to Vectra. Now, in its protest, the S2 primarily challenged issues that had been raised in the initial Vectra's protest or was discussed in GAO's decision, but it also alleged new issues regarding Vectra's past performance, specifically that the Army misevaluated Vectra's proposal during the competition and should not have assigned Vectra a substantial competence past performance rating. GAO, however, dismissed each of the S2's protest routes. With respect to the S2's new allegations concerning the Army's evaluation of Vectris's past performance, GAO held that the S2 waived those arguments because it could have raised that to intervene in the original Vectris protest. GAO further noted that even if the S2 were not required to make such additional arguments at the time of the original protest, they also remained an untimely request for reconsideration. But first glance, that outcome seems harsh. In the original Vectris protest, the S2 was already the awardee and intervened only to defend its award. However, GAO noted that in prior cases, it warned that affirmative challenges that an intervener could have but failed to make against a protester's interested party status are waived in a subsequent protest following a change in the award decision. So that's just another interesting protest decision on how certain actions or inactions can cause potential future protest arguments to be waived. Peter? Great. Now we move from bid protest updates to false claims updates, and we've got two of them as well. I'll start with Sixth Circuit decision. On March 31st, the Sixth Circuit found that under the False Claims Act, an employee, as defined, includes both current and former employees of a government contractor, and that an employer's allegedly retaliatory conduct directed at a former employee can be actionable under the FCA's retaliation prong. In Felton, which was the decision at issue, the relator believed that his employer, Beaumont Hospital, was violating the False Claims Act because of kickbacks that were being paid to physicians and physician groups in exchange for certain types of referrals. The relator also alleged that the hospital violated the FCA's anti-retaliation provisions by threatening and marginalizing him insistence that the hospital must comply with law. The Sixth Circuit vacated district court's order granting Beaumont Hospital's motion to partially dismiss the first amended complaint and determined that the FCA extends to both current and former employees. The court reasoned that a contrary result would undermine the FCA's purpose, which is to discourage fraud against the government. If former employees cannot invoke these anti-retaliation provisions, potential whistleblowers could be dissuaded from reporting fraud, fearing that their employers will threaten or harass them without repercussions. So now we've got a bit of a circuit split. The Sixth Circuit decision is a departure from prior Tenth Circuit precedent, which has held that only retaliation against current employees can support an FCA claim. So interesting to see how that plays out, and obviously important to be mindful of the distinction between current and former employees under these provisions. Yuan, back to you for our second FCA update. Thanks, Peter. On March 30th, 
the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of North Carolina held that status reports that certified compliance with subcontracting rules don't constitute false claims under the False Claims Act because the claims were not relevant to the actual contract payment. So at issue was a Navy contract awarded in 2008 to a joint venture. The JV was required to biannually submit individual subcontracting reports, certifying that it was compliant with FAR 52219-8, which requires that small businesses have the maximum possible practicable opportunity to participate in performing contracts. Now, the relator filed a KTM suit, alleging that the JV falsified those ISRs in two material ways. First, the JV subcontracted with an entity called Fredlo, which certified that it was a woman-owned small business, but in reality was a sham entity that didn't qualify as a small business. And second, the JV subcontracted with five small businesses that didn't actually perform the labor or work and instead were part of a pass-through scheme in which each of those five small businesses subcontracted the substantive work to large businesses. Now, on the defendant's motion for summary judgment, the court held that the ISRs, even if they included a false statement, were not actionable under the FCA because they were not part of a claim for payment. Now, on the other hand, the monthly progress payment request, they did not specifically certify compliance with the terms and conditions of the subcontracting plan or FAR 52219-8, and therefore, they also could not serve as a basis for FCA liability under an express certification theory. The court also found that the JV had acted in good faith when it relied on Breslow's self-certification as a woman-owned small business and further made a good faith mistake in its interpretation of FAR 52236-1 and actually conferred with the government regarding the concept of a pass-through arrangement, but was not warned away. So just another interesting FCA decision to be aware of on what constitutes a false claim. Peter, back to you. Perfect. Thank you, Yuan. And with that, we will close out this edition. This has been the Fastest Five Minutes brought to you by Kroll and Mooring. See you again in two weeks. If you have any questions about these items, I can be reached at 202-624-2807, and Yuan can be reached at 202-624-2666. Thank you so much for joining us. The Fastest Five Minutes podcast is brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy our show, please leave us a review. You can find more information at kroll.com slash govconpodcast.